it's hard in Isaiah to start at a chapter heading <laughs> because the chapters are um, not always very sound. In a sense, we need to go back to chapter 7 for a little bit and lay a foundation. We're in what's, what scholars some have called the book of Emmanuel, Isaiah 7 through uh, 12. <clears throat> and in this book, Emmanuel is in this section of the book, Emmanuel is going to be a dominant issue. Um, and since Isaiah 7.14 is such a, a well-known verse for us, we kind of need to go back to 7.14 and look at what the prophecy of Emmanuel is because we're going to be able to clarify some of what the prophecy is saying in chapter, chapter 8. Um, and we're not going to be finished with it until we get to chapter 12, frankly. Uh, the clarification of what Emmanuel means is going to take... 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 uh, to do it. Does that make sense to you? We have Isaiah seven fourteen in our Christmas celebration rightly. Um, it's quoted in Matthew with reference to the birth of Jesus. But there's, there's a lot going on in Isaiah that helps us unpack the meaning of the name Emmanuel. So let's go back to Isaiah seven fourteen. 14. Um, in that verse, you could quote it in your sleep. Yes? Of course, we do a lot of strange things in our sleep. I dreamed last night that Dr. Bailey, the president of Dallas Seminary, had asked me to be his personal bodyguard. <laughs> I, this, I kept waking up and going back to sleep and picking up with the same dream. It was the strangest dream. And all I had was a little light carry uh, 380 pistol with five, with five shells in it. That's all I had. And there, there was an attack and everybody was, go help him. I can't. All I got is five shells. <laughs> uh, so it was, uh, so if you can quote it in your dream, uh, strange things must, may come in fact, but Isaiah seven fourteen is the sign that um, God has asked Ahaz to ask for. Do you remember this now? God says through Isaiah 2, King Ahaz, a rank unbeliever, an, an idolater. Uh, he's not an idolater like Jeroboam, the first of the northern kingdom, who just made a statue to represent God. He's an idolater like Ahab, um, later a much later king in the northern kingdom, who uh, only about 80 years after Solomon's death... Uh, is bringing in Baal worship. Uh, so Ahaz is like that. He has a good pedigree. His father um, and grandfather, um, Uzziah, Jotham, uh, the, the grandfathers, Uzziah, Jotham is the father, uh, are godly men, but Ahaz rebels against the whole thing, and just throws everything out. Uh, he's facing, as we said last time in Isaiah 7, the early part of the chapter, he's facing a uh, coalition of nations, western nations, who are, <clears throat> who are trying to oppose the imposition of Assyrian rule in the west. Uh, the Assyrians lived in what is today northern Iraq. And they've, they've been campaigning over that way, trying to extend their, uh, their empire. So the bigger your empire, the, the more wealth flows into the capital. That's, that's the key point. Ahaz is actually pro-Assyrian. At one point in his reign, he went to a city up north, north of uh, the Sea of Galilee 
and met the king, I can't remember which one it was, um, Shalmaneser III perhaps, you don't care, so why should I? But uh, met the king of Assyria and sent back to to, Jeru- to, uh, uh, to um, Jerusalem orders to to move the altar of the Lord out from in front of the temple and build a new altar on an Assyrian model. So effectively, he was instituting idolatrous practice right in the temple courts in Jerusalem. Uh, he said, "Keep the temple, the altar of the Lord. Move, move it off to the side." And when I need help from the Lord, I'll go, I'll go inquire of him, but we'll make our major sacrifices on this new altar. Uh, so just a, a radical uh, rabble, uh, rebel. The, uh, the Lord sent Isaiah, though, to say to him, ask for a sign. Make it high as heaven or deep as earth, uh, deep as, as uh, Sheol. And in, a, in an act of feigned piety, Ahaz said, I won't tempt the Lord <laughs> And uh, Isaiah said, is it not enough, O house of David, that you would test men, but you'll test the heart of the Lord also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Immanuel. And we said last week that Immanuel can be interpreted one of two ways. It can be interpreted providentially, which is the way chapter 8 interprets it. Uh, providentially, God is with us. We can trust God because he's with us. So in latter part of chapter 8, Isaiah is, is going to say, I and the children whom God has given me are for signs and wonders in, in Israel to be wondered at. And uh, he, it, this is quoted, by the way, in, in, in Hebrews, but he also quotes, uh, I will trust in the Lord. I will be confident in him. So the, the point is that Isaiah is a kind of foil for Ahaz. Ahaz trusts in Assyria. Uh, Isaiah trusts in the Lord. Are you with me? This is, this is where we're heading in all of this. So the Emmanuel prophecy comes, and we think, ah, oh, Jesus, virgin birth. But that's not where the text takes us. It takes us through into chapter 9 before we get to that point. Um, I took a course years ago. It was team taught. I, I didn't actually take it. I audited the course, but it was. there are some courses that you audit and you kind of pay attention. Yes? Some courses that you audit and you skip. You pay for the privilege of skipping. Amen? And then there are some courses that you really pay attention to. This one was a very important course to me. It was taught by two of my professors. And it was called uh, Old Testament Problem Passages. And I wanted to see how they were going to handle various problem passages. One of them always took the, the larger context as the determinative point. The other always took the narrower passage, the narrower context, as the determinative point for interpretation. And I learned a lot from watching them work. Uh, so what I'm, what I'm going to do <clears throat> is what my favorite professor said. He said... The senator was coming home from Washington, and there was a great debate going on in the, in the Capitol. And he said the newsmen met him at the airplane. This is how old this illustration is. It's before TSA. Amen. Met him at the airplane, and they said, Senator, where do you stand on this issue? And he said, well, some of my friends stand on this side of the issue. And he carefully outlined all the arguments for that side. And they, then he said, and some of my friends stand on this side of the issue, and he carefully outlined all the arguments for that side. And he stopped. And the news 
people said, but Senator, where do you stand? He said, I stand with my friends. So I'm, I'm, going, <laughs> I'm going to stand with both of the men who, um, who taught that course that the immediate context, look at uh, 7.15. What does the birth of Emmanuel mean in 7.15 and following? Uh, so I read, he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land of the t- of, uh, 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 whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So within a 10 to 12 year period, the kings that he is so Ahaz is so afraid of, the king of the northern kingdom, uh, Pekah, the son of, of uh, Remaliah, um, Pekka's first name did. Well, most people don't know it. Do you know Pekka's first name? Wood. Wood, yes. Wood, yeah. Wood Pekka. Uh, so I, I don't try to hold anything back. It just, if it comes to mind, I say it. So you have to, if you're going to be in this class, you have to live with it. Yes. Uh, Pekka, the, the king of, of Samaria, and also the um, Ritzin, the king of, of Syria are in an alliance with other nations trying to force Judah into the anti-Assyrian coalition. So he's saying, first, there's going to come deliverance. It's going to be 10 10 to 12 years. Within 10 to 12 years. It's not coming next week or next month. Yes? So what does that mean? Well, verse 17, the Lord will bring on you and on your people and on your father's house, such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of, namely the king of Assyria. And it will come about in that day. What does the birth of Emmanuel mean in chapter 7? It means a, a near conquest, Assyrian conquest of the southern kingdom. So that, as he describes it, uh, verse 18, it will come about in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly that's in the remotest parts of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that's in the land of Assyria, and they will come and settle on the steep ravines and on the ledges of the cliffs and on the thorn bushes and on all the watering places. In that day the Lord will shave with a razor hired from regions beyond the Euphrates, that is, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and it will, it will also remove the beard. Now it will come about in that day that a man may keep alive a heifer and a pair of sheep, and it will happen that because of the abundance of milk produced, he will eat curds for for everyone that is left within the land will eat curds and honey. And it will come about in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines valued at a thousand shekels of silver will come briars and thorns. People will come there with bows and arrows because all the land will be briars and thorns and as for the hills which used to be cultivated by the hoe you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns but they will become a place for pasturing oxen and sheep to trample so what does the birth of Emmanuel mean initially it means judgment in Judah and later he's going to describe that judgment the waters of Assyria the waters of the Euphrates River used figuratively for the Assyrian army are going to flow down into your land O Emmanuel and it's going to flow so deeply that it's going to be like there's a man standing with only his neck and head sticking out of the water so all that's left of Judah is Jerusalem and its immediately surrounding fields everything else in Judah is taken as a as a province of, of uh, 
of Assyria. So what does the coming of Emmanuel mean in Isaiah 7.14? Judgment for Judah and for the house of David. Yes? I'm trying this is confusing. Yeah, of course. Now, Isaiah here is a young person, right? Presumably. Okay, he's not an old person. Okay, so... Well, it depends on whether he's young, old, old, older, or oldest old, but... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Yes. The king is looking at this young squirt saying, what do you know? Yeah. And he's basically, is he saying to the king, and my question is, is Isaiah saying today, ask for a sign and the Lord will give it to you and prove that I'm right? Hmm. What he's doing is he's, he's, in offering the sign to Ahaz, go back earlier in chapter 7. When he offers the sign to Ahaz, he's offering him an ap- opportunity to respond in faith. And I'll show you that here. Um, look at verse uh, 7. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. Namely, the, the coalition that's attacking Judah, they're not going to succeed. Um, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is, is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is, is crushed, as we said last week. His name, Ratzin, nobody would have named this kid Ratzin. His name was Ratsunu or something like that, mean, meaning favored, but Ratsa means to crush, to crumble. So the head of Damascus is only Ratzin. Now, within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is, is, we might add here in English, only Remaliah. If you will not believe, you will surely not last. So, verse 10, then the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, ask a sign. So, he's offering him a sign to help him in responding in faith. And Ahaz will have nothing of it. He is an open... He's afraid of the answer... No, because he hates the answer. He wants to be in control. Uh, one of the other aspects of this whole passage, 7 to 12, is um, contrasting the true empire with the false empire. Ahaz wants to be part of the false empire. Um, what, what he will not believe is that suffering, hardship, can ever serve the purposes of God. See, part of the problem of our day is that much of Christian, much that passes for Christian teaching is saying what my mother said to me. She's in heaven now. She knows better. So. <laughs> but, but she said, if you will be right in the center of the will of God for your life, nothing really bad will ever touch you. Well, that's nonsense, and her life was proof of it. Um. And uh, there, there's a whole lot wrong with that statement. But the, but the idea is, we think that if we just stroke God the right way, then we're going to be um, healthy, wealthy, and wise. Amen? I, I said things like this in a class in Memphis, and a student who was... Um, I don't know quite how to describe him without being self-serving. Students said, but if we're obedient, won't we be happier? And he kind of said it that way, you know, because he was so happy. (laughs) Uh, And I said, was Jesus? Was he happy? 
No. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Are you with me here? Uh, what was it like for Jesus to live amid all this sin? Oh, I, you, you have been places, no doubt, yes or no, where there is such filth it makes you sick, physically sick. How, how would Jesus have reacted? Now, not amid mere um, hygienic filth. How would he have re- reacted amid all the wickedness of the hearts of even righteous people? Are, are you with me here? Yes. Perhaps another aspect for Jesus was also that he knew he was going to mm-hmm. He's going to take care of that. Yeah. But it's also, uh, he's just having to live with all of this filth all those years. I just, I can't imagine it. So is he a man who is happy? And I think there was a certain element of happiness in him because he was a friend of publicans and sinners. He could be rightly accused of that, yes? And they don't like people who are always glum and, yes? Uh so, but, so there was an element of happiness in him. But there was also a deep element of sadness in him. Does this make sense to you? So this whole prosperity gospel kind of thing that has infected us down to the core of our beings because we've been taught it every day of our lives in commercials every time we listen to the radio or watch TV. It, it has infected the whole of our lives and we think, What I really need to be is happy. Well, I'm just not happy doing this. Nobody said you should be. Jesus wasn't happy on the cross. Amen? So, what are the means that God has planned to make us like Christ? Well, I know that verse like you do. Amen? All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Amen? But what's the context? Shall we choose the nearer or the more distant context? Let's choose the nearer. That's Romans 8, what? 28? See, I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary, and I know things most people don't know. One of the things I know is that chapter 12, verse 28 comes after verse 17. Amen. Amen. <laughs> if we are children then we are heirs heirs of God joint heirs with Christ if we suffer with him that we may be glorified with him I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us just in case you think well that was several verses before let me take you several verses after Romans eight twenty eight. Um, verse I don't know what verse it is. Yeah, it, yeah, good. That's probably is that I. I yeah, it's actually probably best to translate that what, but I don't think any translation does that. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Notice the things that he lists are not whose but whats. Yes. What are the things that might separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? Read, read verse thirty-five there. 
shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. What's verse 36 say? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. Huh? We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Oh, yippee. <laughs> from, from 817 and 18 to 835, we're still talking about suffering. Yes? So what are the chances that 828 is talking about suffering too? And how shall I expect to become like Jesus? You see, now, now let me go with my other professor. I'm going to stand with my other friend and go to the broader context. The, the subject of suffering is first broached in the book of Romans in Romans chapter 5 and verse 3. Verse 1, uh, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And we boast and hope of the glory of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And not only so, but we boast in <clears throat> sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces, pers- uh, uh, so no, the endurance is perseverance. So yeah. Suffering, uh, produce, uh, perseverance produces approved character. How do we get to be like Christ? Through suffering. So Ahaz has rejected the kingdom because he doesn't want it. It means things he doesn't want to have to do. There are costs he's not willing to pay. He likes, I I doubt that they, maybe he did. He likes the royal purple. He wants to think of himself as king. He does not want to think of himself as a servant of God. He is an open rebel against the rule of God. He would rather be a slave of Assyria than a slave of God. Um, So uh, this is all born out of this kind of rebellion in the house of David. (laughs) I say again, a a fundamental fact about David and King Saul, because they're they're played off against each other in 1 Samuel. Do you remember the the book? Um, the difference between the two can be boiled down. Probably, it, it, this is oversimplified, but at least the way I think about things, it can be boiled down to this. Saul thought, I'm the king, and I control who gets the kingdom after me. David says, no, God is king, and I am his servant. And he comes nearest failure when he comes nearest forgetting that fact. In the, in the days of Uriah and Bathsheba. Because he's back in Jerusalem when the army's out fighting the wars of the Lord. David should have been out there with them. Instead, he was at home taking it easy, sending. And you watch this in in 2 Samuel, what is that, 11. For a while, as the story starts, David's sending and people are going and doing what what, what he wants done. But very soon, God sends. (laughs) And it's fascinating when God sends and when David sends. When David sends people when David sends, people die. When God sends, people repent. Uh, and so so here Ahaz is more like David in 2 Samuel 11 than he is in uh, like David in any other part of David's life, though he is the heir of David. So he doesn't want to be part of the kingdom of God. He wants to be part of the kingdom of Assyria. Better to serve Assyria than to serve the Lord. The, the effect of that is, now let's go down to chapter 8. The effect of that is 
that God sends the prophecy of Emmanuel, which is at initially a prophecy of coming judgment. God is with us, and you've rebelled against him. You cannot rebel against the Lord with impunity. Judgment is coming. And as he will say in chapters 9 and 10, he's not finished with this whole treatment of the matter with Ahaz until he gets into chapter 11. Finally, Ahaz is going to be completely replaced, and all of Ahaz's descendants are going to be completely replaced, and all of Ahaz's forebears are going to be completely replaced. Because the house of David will finally become so wicked that God cannot continue the house of David through the line of Solomon anymore. Uh, Jeremiah has the prophecy, you may remember it. Right, this, this is about uh, Jeconiah or, or Jehoiakim. They have diff- different ways of using the names. Um, but he says about Jeconiah, the heir of David. Write this man down childless. No heir of this man will prosper sitting on the throne of David. So there is no heir for David that can come from the line of Solomon. Thus, in the book of Luke, the ancestry of Jesus is traced through David's son, Nathan. Okay. Are you with me here? Um. So, we get to chapter 8. And in 8, 1, Then the Lord said to me, Take for yourself a large tablet, and write on it in ordinary letters, Swift is the... Uh, I'm reading the New American Standard, and it uses a word that needs clarification. Okay? Um, um, this is why we need to translate the Bible regularly, uh, because words change meaning. And the booty is not quite the right word yet anymore. Are you you with me here? (laughs) uh, um, At least translations need to be revised on a regular basis to account for newer usages of words that don't fit quite where you want them to be. So he says, name him, um, uh, write on uh, on the tablet, swift is the plunder, speedy is the prey. And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest. Do you know anything about Uriah the priest? Probably not. In 2 Kings, this is the guy who built the new, new altar for Ahaz. But, he's, but it's going to be essential that the priest certify the message. And so uh, right on this, on this large tablet, swift is the plunder, Speedy is the prey, and I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. So, I have, so? NASV reads, so? What does that mean, so? I, I approached the prophetess. Hmm? So, as a result, I went to the prophetess? What, what does that have to do with anything? I, went, I approached the prophetess, and she can be conceived and bore a son. Does that sound familiar? And um, uh, the uh, Lord said to me, name him. Does that sound familiar? Well, yeah, it does. Back in chapter 7, verse 14. Yeah, not the name, but, but the... Uh, uh, so, so what is the name? Well, it's what was written on the tablet just a, few, a couple of verses earlier. So 
Within the context, it seems like, and significant commentators, good evangelical commentators, have taken this view. Not everybody takes this view, but I think it's the right one within the immediate context. The Emmanuel that is in view is this prophetess. You will say, but this is not a virgin birth. So how is this even a fulfillment of that prophecy? We'll go back to 714. In 714, it doesn't say that the child will, will, will have no father at all. It just says that the virgin will conceive. Yes? And I point out to you again what we pointed out last week, that in your text probably it says a virgin will conceive in 714, but in Hebrew it's the virgin will conceive. Uh, so it may be that he's actually pointing at a particular woman. How many times do you know a couple who are planning to get, to get married and the, uh, the, uh, about that couple, you can say, not only are, there go- are they going to get married, does everyone who's planning to get married get married? No. So how many people do you know who are planning to get married who you can say about them, uh, they will get married and she will get pregnant and within 10 to 12 years they will have a son who's already reached the age to, to choose the good and, and re- refuse the evil. But also, it's going to be a son, and it, the, the child is going to survive the first five years of his life. What we don't understand, because we live in such a, an age medically that we just assume a baby who's born is going to live, yes. But there, there are cultures where 60, 70, 80% of children die before age five. There are in some of those cultures they don't even name a child till kids after uh, reached five, because you develop too much of an attachment to the kid. Um, and this is the case in most of world history that most children, something like sixty percent of children, died before age five. So how do you know that that woman's going to have a child, and that child's going to be a boy, and that boy's going to be born with a healthy, with a healthy birth? And that boy's going to survive beyond five to 10 or 12 years old. How do you know that? Because this is God's plan. He's telling them the plan, and it's now working out. So the initial, the initial element or meaning of the name Emmanuel is judgment's coming. There's going to be some deliverance for you, but it's not anytime soon, and it's not much deliverance at all. Um. Not yet. It will. I point, I point to you that we're in the near context. We're going to have to go to the broad context to see all the meaning of the name Emmanuel. Yeah. So this might be too far out, and I know you're not there yet. Yeah. <clears throat> but is that why Herod and all Jerusalem with him was disturbed when the Magi arrived and said, where is he? No, because Herod, <laughs> uh, do you know anything about Herod's history? What do you know? He was not actually a Jew. Right, Idumean. He was a proselyte. But he he was a man extremely jealous for his throne. Um, He had a beloved wife, Mariame. Um, I've forgotten the details. I think she had two sons. She was a most beloved wife. But he conceived the notion that those two boys were plotting with her against him to set one of them on the throne. So he had them all three killed. When he died in his will, he, he, before he died, 
he, uh, uh, not, not in his will, but, but before he died, he gave orders that on the moment of the announcement of his death, all the elders in every village and town in, in Israel were to be put to death so that at least there would be some mourning for his, for his death. So that's why everybody... Yeah. Yeah. All Jerusalem <laughs> worried with him because he was such a man. Uh, so no, it has nothing to do with that. Uh, has, uh, 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 Herod doesn't even know this prophecy. So when the, the priests were able to say, no, it's, it's Beth, Bethlehem Ephrathah, mm-hmm. go that way, mm-hmm. were they basically saying, don't kill us? Go no, kill it's, it, no, they're quoting from Micah. Uh, so, but no, say, it's, no, they're just saying go to Bethlehem. That's where the Messiah is supposed to be born. It would seem like that would transfer... Risk yeah, but that's, I, I, I don't think that's the point. The point is he still killed all the children, all the boy babies in Ephrathah. Did, did he die a horrible death? I think, I can't remember. I hope. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's go uh, then. Uh, verse, um, verse 3, so I approached the prophetess and she conceived and gave her birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, name him Maher Shalal Hashpaz, which is what? Swift to the plunder, hurry to the prey, means. For, before the boy knows how to cry out my father or my mother. Does this sound familiar at all? It's a little different from chapter 8, but it's the same kind of idea. The wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Same thing. Judgment's coming. Are you with me here? Um, The idea is... um, there, in chapter eight, the, or 7, the idea was before the boy reaches 10 or 12. Here is before he can say, my father and my mother, within two or three years. Uh, so, again, the Lord spoke to me saying, verse 5, verse 6 now, inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, this is the, the, um, the um, pool of Siloam, uh, in this, in this passage, this, these are difficult ideas for us, but you're thinking of what is the effect of a king? An effect of a king is to provide gently flowing water, life. Yes? In his, and, and by the way, these people, um, where did it go? Yeah, verse 6, these people are talking about, this is talking about the northern kingdom, not so much Judah. These people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. They have rejected Jerusalem. They have rejected the history of God at Jerusalem. They have rejected all the plans of God focused on Jerusalem. They've rejected David. They, they, but they rejoice in Ratzin, the son of Remaliah. Rejoice again is an odd concept for us. In Judges, there's, an, uh, there's a strange passage. Do you remember, remember? I know you remember Gideon. Do you know his son? His son's named Abimelech. Gideon is the man who said, I will not be a king over you. The Lord will be king over you. And then he named his son Abimelech, which means my father is king. <laughs> and he started living like a king. He had 70 sons. Had a really, really old wife. Or, how do you normally get 70 sons? You had harem. What kind of man has... A family of 70 sons and a harem, a king. He, he wants all the benefits of being king without 
having any of the responsibilities of being a king. Um, Abimelech, actually the text says he ruled over Israel, I think it was two years, in Shechem. But his brother, he killed all of his brothers except one, Jotham, who came and gave a, a uh, parable, uh, actually an allegory, to uh, call the people of Shechem to see that Abimelech's rule is only going to bring destruction for them. And in the end of the parable, it's about the, the trees looking for a king, and they finally settled on the thorn bush. And the thorn bush says, if you will rejoice over me, and the idea is rec- recognize me as your king. Does that make sense to you? So here they rejoice over, uh, the, the northern kingdom rejoices over, they fear, the only king they fear, not God, the only king they fear is Ritzin. Um, uh, therefore, seven verse 7 says, Behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates. You don't like the gentle life-giving waters. You want the flood. Even the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise up over all its channels, go over all its banks, Then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck. And the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land. How does the verse end? Oh, Emmanuel. Now Emmanuel is the owner of the land. Um, How does the son of Isaiah become the owner of the land? Well, he clearly doesn't. Yes? Yes? From Ahaz's point of view, Ahaz owns the land. They pay taxes to him. Yes? From the people's point of view, the land belongs to Ahaz. When they submit to the Assyrians, the, 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 the political point of view will be that the Assyrians own the land. There's another Emmanuel coming, and this is the first intimation of it. Remember what we've been saying? How often have we said this over the, over the recent years? When what God has done in the past is both a model and a promise of what he will do in the future. Though he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. Just let me lay the groundwork for this so you'll see it. When Emmanuel is born, it brought death in Ephratah. Yes? Jeremiah anticipates that. In fact, it's, it's from Jeremiah that they quote. Don't remember, I think it's Jeremiah 30. It could be 31. Um, about the weeping in Ramah. But he tells them not to weep in the, in the very next verse. Why? How, how can you tell people whose babies have just been killed not to weep? In the broader sense, it's because what follows... See, I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary. I know great and wise things most people don't know. And Jeremiah 31 not only create, uh, contains the prophecy of the death of the baby, babies in Ephratah, it also contains the new covenant. With the death of the babies comes the establishment of the new covenant. Does this make sense to you? So there is hope for Israel. Hope Not... not not over the death of the babies, but the sign of the death of the babies is a sign that the new covenant is on the verge of being established. And then when Jesus, Emmanuel himself, is crucified, what's next for Israel? 
destruction. Judgment is coming. But beyond judgment is hope. This, this sounds more like prophecy than anything else. I mean, if, yeah. if, from our standpoint, we can look back and say, you know, Israel's going to have this problem until mm-hmm. the millennium. Mm-hmm. It's not going to change yeah. until the millennium. Yeah. And then Emmanuel will come back and yeah. we're going to clean it up. So what I'm saying is, as the context expands, I begin to get a bigger view. If what God has done in the past is a model and promise of what he will do in the future, I've got to see what he's done in the past so I'll understand what he's going to do in the future. See, So I'm watching here Emmanuel, who is not only the promise of coming deliverance, but he's more particularly and immediately the prophecy of coming judgment. Judgment for Ahaz and all who with him will choose the kingdom of this world instead of the kingdom of our God. In the days of Jesus, the Pharisees of all people it's, I, I, I completely understand the Sadducees, right? They're secularists anyway. But the Pharisees choose the kingdom of this world and not the kingdom of our God. Ahaz chooses the kingdom of this world and not the kingdom of our God. Are you with me here? Just on and on through this whole period. So we read on, verse 9. But you see, this is not all the story. It's not simply the coming of Emmanuel, Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. It is not simply a message to the unbelievers, judgment is coming. It's a message also to a believing remnant. So verse 9, be broken, O peoples, and shattered. This is a taunt. All you nations... Go on in your ways. Samaria, go on. Syria, go on. Assyria, go on. Do what you wish, but you will be shattered. Give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand for Emmanuel. See, we're still thinking right now in terms of the providential presence of God. God is with us. There's coming a point when we get into chapter 9 when it will be clear that Emmanuel is not simply the providential presence of God, but the personal presence of God. So I was looking last night and this morning at the names in Isaiah 9 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Peleo Eitz, marvel of a counselor. Um, what's next? Eil Gibor, mighty God, a, a, a God who is a, a man of, of war, um, a warrior. Then the third is Aviad, which is translated most of the time, uh, God, uh, uh, everlasting father or eternal father. There are about five translations. I looked at 20-some different translations to see what they do with this, and there were five. Uh, one of them is, Fred, where are you? The, the, uh, the contemporary Jewish Bible does this. There, It translates the next phrase, not um, eternal or everlasting father, but father of, of uh, the world to come, I think. I can't remember how it translates it. Some others translate it, God, a father of eternity. 
father of eternity can well be translated in English, uh, eternal father. That could be exactly what it means. But it can mean also father of eternity. Father of would mean to us, well, it will. It, it would mean the progenitor of something, yes? Does that make sense? The, orig- the originator of something. So father of eternity? Are you with me here? And um, uh, Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace. So we're, we're going to see that the context keeps getting broader and broader. We've made a claim of ownership of the land for Emmanuel. That can't be Isaiah's son. But this is in part exactly what uh, Alec Motier does in his commentary on Isaiah. He raises the issue. It may well be that Isaiah is given all sorts of of prophecies of coming, what I've, what I've come to call a coming redeeming agent. Gets all sorts of prophecies of this, and he thinks he knows who it is. Uh, this is Motier's point of view, and I think he's on the right track. I had, I had begun on this route, and Motier kind of settled it for me. This is probably what's going on. So he thinks maybe it's his son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, but then the story gets broader and broader and more and more revelation comes, and now it can't be my boy. Well, maybe it's Hezekiah. Yes, Hezekiah, godly king. Amen? <laughs> Amen? Wonderful king. But he, he falls down in Isaiah 39. And maybe it's Israel, because Israel's called my servant in 40 and 40 and following. And no, it's not Israel, because... There's a servant who is, whose job is to restore Israel. So Israel surely isn't the servant, servant to restore itself. Maybe 44, maybe it's Cyrus. Because Cyrus is called my servant and he's called my anointed one. No, it can't be Cyrus. He doesn't even know my name, chapter 45 says. So by the end of the book, Isaiah is still left asking the question, pondering, well, who is this redeeming agent? And if this is the strategy that Isaiah is following, one of the things I have to do is teach the book with that strategy in mind. You can't hear Emmanuel without thinking of Jesus. Yes? You cannot hear that. But in Isaiah, you must. We've got got to start thinking with the Bible instead of thinking against it or thinking with our own presuppositions. So here we are in chapter 8. It's time to stop. Um... We'll pick it up at verse 9 next time. But, but let me gather together some threads. One thread I'd like you to hold in your hand is I must let the text tell me how to think rather than telling the text what it has to mean. Secondly, um, I must come to understand that Emmanuel is a sign of judgment as well as coming deliverance. Are you with me here? Third, I must start thinking of Isaiah as, as addressing the problem that his people are all on the wrong side of. Whose is the true kingdom? Well, yeah, but they don't think that. You see, in Isaiah, you must begin to see the various characters that we will encounter as thinking of the kingdom as truly the kingdom of this world. But in reality, it's the kingdom of our God, and he does with it as he pleases. What Saul thought, what King Saul thought, he was. I am the king, and I do with my kingdom as I please. 
he learned was all wrong when his sons died on Mount Gilboa and he killed himself by his own hand. He, he was no king at all. He was a servant of the Lord. And the only true kingdom is the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Are you with me here? And that means then forth, I'm going to have to learn how to, how to dis, distance myself from the kingdom of this world and how to connect myself into the kingdom of God. So what Ahaz failed to do, and what we will see in the passage, the rest of the passage, um, I won't be able to be here next week. I have a class in Washington, D.C. The only flight that can get me home at a reasonable time leaves at 6.45 a.m. I hope it's 6.45 Eastern time and not 5.45, I suspect. I don't know. I don't know what they do on that. Uh, But uh, with TSA, I'm going to have to be there about... 4.45 4.45 to get in and so on. Yay, thank you, Lord. But, but, but um, uh, I've got to start thinking of myself as not being a part of the kingdom of this world, but learn from Isaiah. So we'll, we'll pick up with 8, 9, and try to go through 9, 6, 9, a little bit after that, uh, 9, 7, uh, next time we're together. Uh, but in there, we will see the difference between the two. How do you live in the kingdom of God? How do you live in the kingdom of man? Uh, so this is going to be a key part of what we'll be talking about. And then going on into, into 9 and 10, we're going to watch the, the working of the kingdom of man and then the final triumph of the kingdom of God. So let's, uh, let's close with prayer. Father, um, these are fundamental issues to us. We already have some of the answers, but we don't know all that they will mean. We trust you until we can't understand, and then we're not sure we can trust. And for that reason, we still want to live in the kingdom of man. Father, you know how I've been worried about retirement, and and, 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 um, our brother in the pulpit this morning hit me right there. I've been worried about how are we going to have enough money Where are we going to live? What kind of place do we need to have? I've been pondering those things because I don't have a way of getting at the information I need to be able to understand. But you do. And you know that in my unease in those days of what he called um, dread that we will miss out. Um, Father, in these days of our lives, wherever we are, teach us how to trust you, that you have full understanding of our future. We have none. Since we have none, and since you are infinitely wise and infinitely merciful and infinitely sovereign, then lead us into the kingdom that belongs to you, a kingdom in which we trust And just remain faithful in our daily lives. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. I'm not sure I really even conveyed. What I was trying to ask you is, did Herod and those around him did they connect the passage about Emmanuel I don't think so. with judgment? No, I don't think so. They did not. I don't okay. think they even understood it. 
or even thought about it. Herod wouldn't. He wasn't concerned about it. Okay. Well, no, I know he wouldn't yeah. care because he was a yeah. loser. Yeah. He didn't belong on that throne, right? Well, he was not an heir to that throne. Except that Israel's under judgment. He's not an heir. No. But Israel's under judgment anyway. So. And you know the sad thing it hit. I think last year, was I was thinking about Joseph kneeling in the town with Mary. He's David's son. He's a prince. He's got nothing. But he, but he goes, doesn't go to Jesus. He probably does. Probably practices three years. There's nothing in the text that makes him No, I'm just thinking both he and Mary are right. descendants of David. Well, don't know that about Mary. I thought that the lineage that's brought out about is hers. Not Luke 2, Matthew 2. I thought one was doesn't even think about the genealogy. Okay. But Joseph is who married. The text says who married. Interesting, too, that Jesus could be born of a human woman, but not a human man. And I've wondered if, because God said, I visit the iniquities of the fathers to the third. I don't know, but I, 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 I want it to be the genealogy of Mary, but I can't prove that from the text. It seems more like it's genealogy of Uh, yeah, I, I did know. I had forgotten it. I don't have this. 